Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 5th, 2016, and my guest is Eric Waken, the Deputy Director of Stanford's Hoover Institution and the Robert H. Malott Director of the Institution's Library and Archives. Eric, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks. Happy to be here, Russ. Now, this temptation, I, you know, I, archivists really don't have that exciting a reputation, nothing personal. I mean, Eric's a fine person. But I think when we think of archives, think of a lot of papers and folders, dusty, dry stuff. But it turns out here at the Hoover Institution, we have some pretty incredible stuff. So I wanted to start with three of the more interesting things that we have here at Hoover, or three things that aren't boring about the Hoover Archives. So what do you got for me? I'd be happy to answer that question. I want to say being an archivist is one of the most exciting jobs (laughs) in the world, believe it or not. Uh, You may not be typical, Eric. I think we can say that with certainty. Go ahead. So I'd say three of the most um, interesting things we have in our collections are the following, or that I've come across. One is the operations order for the atomic bomb strike on Hiroshima, which was taken from Tinian Island. One is an x-ray of Adolf Hitler's skull, taken after the attempted assassination on him in 1944. And then one is... um, something that came across us but we weren't able to acquire. That is the wreck of the Lusitania. So let's talk about each of those. The, uh, you, you've got a copy here. I, unfortunately, I'm a little bit disappointed. I get to see the, you know, you bring me the real thing, but you have a copy of that order of the uh, Nola Gay, and uh, I know a little bit about that. I read maybe, I guess, a book on it. Uh, so I know that Paul Tibbetts was the pilot. I recognize his, the Nola Gay was the plane that, that dropped the bomb. I recognize his name on the order. Uh, so what else is interesting about that piece of paper? I think for me, the actual piece of paper represents the power of an actual physical object to take you to a place. The knowledge that this piece of paper was put up on a bulletin board or a sign on Tinian Island and lists the names of the people in the weather plane and the combat strike plane. And for me, it's powerful seeing the object, but also if you look at the... Um, the piece of paper itself, the most important thing for me is where it says bombs, and the only word after that is the word special. Yeah, that gives me goosebumps. It's um, it's very, very powerful, and this is the piece of paper that on most days just said, here's your bombing mission. Not, not in the bombing mission is ever a routine. I guess in the in war at some point it becomes something routine, but it can't ever really be much of a routine. But here this was very out of the ordinary. Yeah, it's sort of an ordinary object that because an ordinary concept of a mission description that was out of the ordinary because of the particular mission. And how did we come to have this piece of paper? So there was a fellow attached to the uh, bomb group named Harold Agnew who um, was on the island and believed that this piece of paper should be saved for posterity. Not only did he do that, though, but he was the person who convinced the plane following you know, Gay to put a camera on it and to film the actual wow. explosion. And we have that film, and that is one of our most requested items to be duplicated, the actual film from the falling plane of the bomb going off. So we're going to talk about preservation, but that film is fragile, right? You don't uh, make copies of that every day or Absolutely. bring it out every day, right? So how do you protect that? No, we don't show people the original film anymore. What we've done is 
made a digital copy of it and preserved the original under conditions where will deteriorate very little. And what we do is we show people the digital copy, and it's been used in documentaries and, and so on. Uh, is it? I mean, it's fascinating, right? It, there seems to be something important about preserving the original, but let's pretend that we never take it out again, right? I guess in theory, something could happen to the digital copies, but they're now spread around the world in all kinds of formats. We can pull that out of documentaries. That it's already in the it's in the world's archives, right? And yet we're going to continue to preserve that actual piece of celluloid. I assume it's film, film, yeah, yeah. right? Why? So that's a great question. That that sort of I understand the impulse, yeah, yeah. right? But it's in a way, it's a strange. It raises existential issues yeah. about you know what is meaning and how do we establish meaning from from objects? If there are simulacrums of that object spread around the world, what's the value of the original? I still think human nature has a powerful association with original one of a kind objects. But you're right, it is preserved. No one will see the original again until we need to do another round of preservation when there's some new technology 50 years hence, and we'll say we've got to get that out and copy it again. It's really amazing. Let's talk about the X-ray of Hitler's brain. So how did we come to find that? How did, how did, how did it come to the Hoover Institution Archives? So because of the Hoover Institution Library and Archives reputation, we've been around almost 100 years, and we collect on war, revolution, and peace. That's actually our name, the Hoover Institution on War, Revolution, and Peace. People often come to us with historically important material, and they want us to preserve it for posterity. And in this case, uh, Colonel William Russell Phillip was a military officer who um, had collected material from Germany during and after the war. And this was in his... As basement. an army officer, not as, as, a, army officer, not as a collector. Not, not as a collector, yeah. as an army officer, as part of his duties. And um, um, that stuff came back with him, and he wanted to put it somewhere where people could see it. And he called Hoover, literally, and said, would you like this material? And... Is there any value to that piece of whatever it is, whatever x-rays were kept on plastic? No, it's not plastic. I don't know what it is. X-ray film, I think. Yeah. Um, so there, I mean, there is value, sort of market value to it. We would never sell it, but I assume there would be market value. But there's value in, in people looking at Hitler's dental work, for example, is what people have yeah. yeah. uh, Now, I did a little research before this conversation because I knew we were going to talk about this x-ray. There are five copies, evidently, supposedly, maybe, there probably are more. There's some, there might be a sixth or a seventh or eighth sitting in somebody's basement or attic somewhere in Germany. But uh, there are five that we know of. How do we know this is one of the five? How do we know it's real? In general, when people come to us with stuff, how do you verify that it's... I mean, art museums have this all the time, mm -hmm. particularly when stuff is being sold. Yep. When somebody gives you something, it's less likely to be fraudulent. But how do you verify... The real out the reality. Yeah, that's one filter. One filter is since they're giving it to us, we're not paying them for it. It, it, it there's a lower threshold for it being fraud. We generally look at the um, association of the provenance of the material. Is the person giving it to us? Did, did he or she have a relationship to the material in some way? In this case, this person did. Was it likely it was acquired legally and so on? And the person signs a document saying that's true. And then we make somewhat of a leap of faith and we say, yeah, we, we believe this is true and actual. We do get calls periodically asking us to authenticate certain things. Every few weeks, someone will call up and say, you know, I have a letter by General William Stilwell. Will you authenticate its signature? And we never do that. We say, you're welcome to come in and look at the materials and do it yourself, but we don't provide that service. Now, some, we're just talking about the two cases, gifts and sales. Um, I know it's not a, it's not a meaningful number, but, I want to say, ask you what proportion of stuff is given to us. It's, not, it's hard to, obviously, how to measure that, but is, is most of the stuff we get a gift or is it mostly a sale? The vast majority of material we get are gifts. 
And uh, while we're on the subject, uh, we got one more thing I want to talk sure. about, but I don't want to forget this. How much stuff is in the Hoover archives? So our archives measure their collections by linear feet. Sure, of course. So really, I mean, I would have done it by <laughs> items, not 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 items. Why not items? We don't do it by items. How much? How many things do we have? No, we don't know exactly in each box how many individual items uh -huh. there, there are. Uh -huh. um, so we have, um, depending on your count, well over a hundred thousand linear feet of materials making us one of the top five, if not top two, archives in America by, by linear feet. By linear feet. <laughs> so we have 6,000 collections. What would be the nature of a collection? How do you define a collection? Uh, a collection is a body of material from one particular source. It might be, if it's an individual, all of her, a uh, group of her letters, photographs, films, diaries, and so on. From an institution, it might be reports, objects, and things like that. So we have Milton Friedman's collected papers, that includes drafts of papers he wrote, final versions of papers he wrote, family... Incoming correspondence from other people. Yeah. Other great economist collections. We also have the collection of Friedrich Hayek. Of course. And as listeners know, I've held in my hands, but in a plastic sleeve. I just want to mention, Eric, don't worry. <laughs> I think it was, in, I'm pretty sure it was in a plastic sleeve. Uh, postcards from Hayek and Keynes over an article that he'd submitted to a journal. I think Keynes was the editor. Um, but that... Those are protected in various forms and ways through from handling, right? All the things are in that. Absolutely. They're stored in acid-free boxes under temperature and humidity controls with fire protection around them, and they're stored in various extra sleeves that protect them from people touching them. So that 100,000 linear feet, um, do we, are we running out of space? What, what if we got some, a lot of stuff that was lengthy? We are almost out of space now. We're doing a process of consolidating seeing what we have in duplicate that we can move out if it's a publication and looking for new space. That's one of my uh, less interesting but most important things. Where do I find the space for our materials? Do you ever throw anything out? We try. Like enough. <laughs> Let's get rid of this. Clean out this section. We try not to, but I do find some collections. You'll open them up and the person has saved uh, paper copies of a newspaper for many years, like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. We don't think we need those, we might get rid of those. You ever, yeah, but do you, do you call off and you call through the collections to find those things? Rarely, but when a collection comes in, we do oh, processing okay. yeah, to look sure, through it. For sure. do, it's called weeding, actually. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that third, you were going to mention three things. What was the third item? The third one was the wreck of the ship Lusitania. So the Lusitania was a British cruise liner. Uh, I looked this up beforehand again, listeners, I'm cheating, but it was a, um, a cruise liner that was sunk off uh, the coast of Ireland. Ireland in 1915, I think, in the middle of World War One, by a German submarine. Correct. Surprised there were submarines in 1915. I was a little bit embarrassed <laughs> that I was surprised by that. But it was sunk, and I was depressed to read. It went down in 18 minutes. There was an explosion after the submarine struck. Uh, unexplained, it said, explosion. Maybe we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, it went down in 18 minutes, and 1,198 crew and passengers died. I I assume there were some survivors. I don't know. There actually. were some survivors. Okay, that's a lot of death, obviously. Um, how do you put that in the archives? Has it been, where is it? So funny, you just asked about storage. This is a perfect acquisition. <laughs> There's no storage cost because it's 300 feet underwater off the coast of Ireland. The interesting story is that a fellow named Greg Bemis, who was a Stanford graduate, bought, the wreck, uh, bought into the wreck, which was sold at auction by the insurers uh, about 50 years ago. And he ended up owning the whole thing over time. And it's his personal property. It's off the coast of Ireland. So it was in international waters until international waters were extended from, was it three miles to 12? In which all of a sudden it now belonged, at least was claimed to belong to. 
Ireland, the government of Ireland claims it is an archaeological wreck, and Mr. Bemis needs permission to dive and see his own property. So he would like to give it to Hoover and Stanford so we can facilitate research onto the ship. And it, besides the historical interest of a 1950, 1915 cruise ship, the issue was, there's a historical issue, which was the um, possibility it was carrying ammunition. Absolutely, and it certainly was carrying three million rounds of rifle ammunition, So, which, depending on your perspective, might have made it a legitimate target. The bigger question was, was it carrying explosives, which, after the torpedo hit, caused the ship to explode faster than it would have. And the historical debate is, what caused the so-called second explosion? So one thing Mr. Bemis would like to do would be a have an expedition go down and look for evidence of that. And because 1,198 people died, it was a huge propaganda uh, vehicle that some say helped the United States uh, get into World War I, right? So that's another reason it's of historical interest. Yes. So why don't we have it? I mean, I'd love to be able to, when I'm in Ireland, to go diving. <laughs> as a, you, show your, you show your Stanford ID and uh, they let you go swimming. This is where vision meets the reality of lawyers and risk. Uh, the vision is that we would have this ship underwater, students would be able to explore it, and the future value is incalculable. We don't know what would happen in the future, so why not keep it now for Stanford? Uh, on the perspective of the university and the institution, there are risks of people diving down there and getting hurt and then someone suing us. And so the risks perhaps outweigh the future future value. Yeah, so we don't have it. We so do so have does... It. Does Mr. Bemis still have it? Mr. Bemis still has it, and he's looking for a suitable home. I was uh -huh. hoping it would be here, but it's not clear it will be. Okay. Amazing. Uh, you mentioned value a couple times. One of the stranger parts of your job is that most of this stuff doesn't have a traditional market value, but you've got to put often a number on it. So when does valuation come into play in your business, and how does that work out? So a couple of ways. One is where a donation is made and someone wants the tax benefit of the donation. In that case, that person gets an independent appraiser and, and does the work. We don't have a part of that, gives the material to right. Hoover and takes the appraised value. But in other ways, it's suppose someone doesn't want to give material to us but wants to sell it to us. We have to establish what is a fair market value for this one-of-a-kind object. So and often there's no comparables. Good and, luck. And, yeah, good luck. Most people believe that their <laughs> item is worth lots of money. Sure. And as an institution, you know, our job is to, is to collect for history, not for financial reasons. So sure. for, to give you an example, someone recently came to me with a wonderful collection of, of uh, signed photographs and letters from many, many famous people and politicians to someone. And that has a big market value for sale, Correct. but for research, not so high. Yeah, not so so there's, a, there's a gap there. Yeah, yeah. So we did not buy it. Did not buy that. And if it had been asked, if they'd offered it as a donation, would we have taken it? probably take it if it's you know historical figures from the 20th century and they have occasional nice things to say in the letters that that's interesting or the, the photographs okay it's well, nice uh how many people come here to use the archive we've got about three thousand people a year come to the reading rooms to actually physically look at materials and that's not counting the tens of thousands who look at the material we have online right for sure and who can use it the hoover library and archives are open to everyone completely without any permissions. So when this airs, you better get ready for a big spike because a lot of our <laughs> listeners, I'm sure, will be interested in this. Yeah, line out the reading room. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, how does that work? So suppose, just hypothetically, I'm an anti-Keynesian, just hypothetically, and I get into the reading room uh, and I ask for the, and my, just mechanically how it works is I put a request in. You can't browse. There's no browsing. No browsing. Close sex. So I put in a request for uh, Hayek box number seven, and I 
and it it comes out in a little cart. It's very old fashioned. I feel like I'm in the 1950s when I when I do this and when I do this, I make it sound like I, I'm doing Hayek research all the time. I've done it a couple times. It's a lot of fun. Anyway, the box comes out, and I start looking through it. It's a little bit of a, it's exciting because I don't know what's in the box. There's a little bit of a fun part to that. And all of a sudden, I come across a postcard from Sean Maynard Keynes, uh, and I think that I'm gonna. Oh, and I have a temptation, let's say hypothetically, to either slip it into my pocket or just sort of in a in an act of. Uh, vigilante justice, tear it up, or whatever. What prevents me from doing that? Human nature is always problematic, I will say that. (laughs) (laughs) On the way in, we take your name and information and put it in a database. We know who's here and why they're here for for future reference and and to make sure if anything's stolen. You sit at a table under surveillance of cameras and of staff, and we do let you look at some materials. The most valuable materials we will ensure you look at only a copy of, because you're there just to look at the, 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 the information in it, but if there's a need to see a really important piece, you can be looking at it in the original in the archives, and I guess there would, in theory, be nothing to stop you from tearing up a terrible postcard from Keynes. Luckily, we haven't had that problem yet. Okay, I was just going to ask, you've never had any, any uh, vigilante... Uh... Well, we've not had any vigilante activity here, but other collections have been pilfered at other places which have been associated, and you, you, one challenge is... You don't know every individual piece of paper you have, so we do Correct. our best job to keep close eye on what people are doing. One of my favorite things is it does say uh, on the webpage that you cannot wear a jacket with pockets. Is that correct? That is correct. And, it, and it, you're advised to wear a sweater. I love that. I just love that because it can be chilly. And I assume that's a quality control issue, or is it just a thermostat issue here at Stanford, which many people often complain about well, anyway? The, so one of the theft techniques has been... Jackets with fake pockets in it, so we keep that out, uh-huh. and uh, it, it does get a little cold in the air conditioning. Uh, some people cram documents in their socks, but um, but you, do, you are allowed to wear socks. Ross, this is like uh, the real world. The more surveillance you have, the the, the more you can control. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it is under cameras and cameras and you know. human staff. Now, I know you are a big believer in access. We're talking about the openness of the archive, which is a very cool thing. Uh, why is that? Why is that important? I like to say that you can have the most important, most interesting, most fascinating material in the world, and if no one sees it, then it doesn't matter. So our job as an archive is certainly to protect material, to describe it, to um, collect it, but ultimately the job is to connect the material to the users. People need to find our material in the archives, in exhibits, online. That's our goal, so people can tell the stories from the material. So I remember the first time I saw you speak uh, about some of these issues, and I remember just thinking, well, like, why don't we just digitize everything? I mean, what's the? I mean, it's nice. We've talked a little bit about the specialness of, of physical objects, but just let's put it online, and then people could do all their research, which they're used to doing now. They're, they're very, it's very, as I said, it's very old-fashioned to actually handle the material. Uh, wouldn't it be easier just to put it all online? Sure. There's two things going on here. One is access to resources. Uh, Hoover's privately funded, and many of our donors have said that to me. Why can't we yeah, just be like Google? Yeah. And I say, if you give me $5 billion, I'll be... <laughs> yeah, why is it so, why is it so expensive? But, um, it's very expensive because you need to... Um, an archive is full of materials that aren't just like books, which go in a book cradle. There are all sorts of different sizes, number one. A book cradle is something that... Uh, you sit a book, you copy on a book to be scanned, and, and the machine will turn the pages, and it's scanned. But in this case, you've got individual items. Take the strike order we, did, we, we uh, mentioned... Not only do you have to scan it and store it, which are two costs, but you have to describe it. Someone has to type in what that means. Yeah, I forgot about that. And then um, the other thing it runs up against is what I say. There are three things. We want to digitize the material that's in need of preservation. 
that is outside of copyright, that is we can put online for lots of people to see, and there's research interest for. So what proportion of our stuff is accessible online? Again, square footage is my, or linear feet might not be the best and it's hard to measure, but do you have some idea? Are we Very like 5% uh, in? Less, less, well, less than 5%. Can we talk about a book cradle for a minute? <laughs> who makes those? I never thought, why would anybody make, who, who could manufacture that? How many could they sell? I don't know, probably not very many. <laughs> it's like buggy whips. Yeah, not it's a strange, well, it's a strange, yeah, it's a strange, uh, that's a strange thing. Um, I will say, can I just throw out yeah, the, uh, sure. people want numbers, you know, I say we have um, over 80 terabytes of digital data. But already? Already. Some of which we can only show in our reading room because of, of, of copyright or other sorts of restrictions. Our, our, one of our biggest collections is the collections from the uh, Ba'ath Party in Iraq after the government of Saddam Hussein fell. And we have almost 50 terabytes of that data. Secret police archives, 11 million pages digitized. How did we get that? Uh, Afraid the, to ask. And, well, after the invasion, various parties came in and collected and took pieces of the uh, state police records. And in one case, an anti-Saddam Hussein group took it and got it to Hoover. So those were just private individuals there. Yeah, and, you know, and there was intervention by the U.S. government to copy pieces of it. That's how we have our copy. They copied it first, and then we got it via that method. We have a copy or the original? We have both the originals and a copy, digitized. Wow. Okay, very interesting. Uh, now, I know we have a big poster collection, um, and these are not movie posters. They're all they're typically war-related propaganda, army recruitment, uh, how many posters do we have? We have over 130,000 posters from countries all around the world. That's a lot of linear feet. Yes. Uh, how do we come to get, do we, have, do we have the best poster collection in the world? I would say we have one of the best poster collections in the world. Who else is in the room? Um, Library of Congress, British Library, British Museum. Big, big, big institutions have collections, and there's a couple of private dealers with nice collections. They don't have 100,000. Mm, they might? Probably not. When, when, when I'm talking to one now. Challenges <laughs> about posters, they're beautiful, single-piece Lovely colors, and they tell a story about that moment in time, some revolutionary movement, political movement, or otherwise. But uh, cataloging them is a big challenge. Yeah. We have 130,000. About 25% are cataloged and digitized. You can see them. So that means 75% are in drawers, not described. And how do we come to have so many? So over time, people... Garage sale? Garage, <laughs> a lot of garage Somebody sales. was uh, <laughs> getting rid of their collection. So over time, uh, <laughs> people have given them to us. We've bought them in those two ways. In fact, I'll tell you a story about valuation. Someone called me, a dealer called me the other day and said, do I want um, 10,000 Greek uh, posters? From what time period? And I, said, um, 60, I mean, if they're, if, if they're from two or 3,000 years ago, I'd say <laughs> yes. Yes, <laughs> 60s through today. Uh-huh. And I said, well, you know, I really haven't been able to catalog the other ones. And he said very cleverly, he said, well, if you have 70,000, 80,000 uncatalogued, why not have 90,000 uncatalogued? <laughs> That would depend on the price. I think exactly. would be the right answer to that. I'm exactly. sure that's what you said. Uh, but, you know, we are, to some extent, I mean, obviously we're, we have lots of stuff, but when I think of Hoover, part of the, one of the things I do think of is those collections. Now, the reason I think about it, part of it is that many of those posters, I assume they're copies, maybe they're not, are hanging around my, the building where our offices are. So that there are artwork that are adorning the, the halls, so I know we have a lot of them. Mm. Uh, how do we? How did it get started? What, did, did somebody donate a two thousand to start with, and we suddenly became known as a place, or is this just something? That's that, a great question. First of all, there are copies hanging in our offices, okay. none of the originals. So. I'm relieved. Um, so relieved. You know, I don't actually know how it got started, but I got to tell you, as soon as people start collecting ephemera, right, one of a kind objects, posters would have been on the menu. Yeah, for sure. So I bet they started early. Now we have some traditional 
archive things like the, I would just call these pieces of paper, mm. uh, like the strike order, like letters Milton Friedman wrote to colleagues, um, General Stillwell, Vinegar Joe Stillwell's diaries. Right. We've got yeah. we've got those. And by the way, I did notice that those are available online. It, digitized online. You can read. I picked a day in 1941. wasn't that interesting. I have to confess, but I'm sure there are more interesting days. Uh, but historians are very interested in that. Obviously, we, we also have Chiang Kai-shek's diaries. diaries temporarily, correct? Yeah, interesting story. Um, the granddaughter-in-law of Chiang Kai-shek said, "Would you hold these materials for me?" In other words, she deposited them with us for 50 years. Said we should make them available with some redactions she wanted, and we had those redactions are personal. Family insults or yes, moments like of emotional tiny, openness tiny, that are yes, tiny amount, and uh, we've made them available. They are are our number one item of interest to researchers because no one knew he kept a diary for so long, and no one had ever seen it till two thousand seven eight here. Unfortunately, there are other descendants of Chiang Kai Shek who say those diaries belong to them. Yeah, and uh, we said that's that's fine. We'd like to give them back to the the proper person, but you can imagine a family is trying to decide. Together, there are 14. Who's, who's the proper owner? So, but when it was donated to us for a 50-year period, there was the understanding it's after 50 years, they would go where? It uh, wasn't stipulated. Okay, the, but they, could, they gave them with the, with the understanding that they would be returned. Absolutely, and we have no interest in holding on to them. Now, when you say they were, um, we wouldn't mind holding on to them. Mm, I think you know, this is a great question. The research interest is in the copies, which we only show the copies. Uh -huh. So, but again, the, the power of the object is very powerful. When we get visitors here from the mainland who, you know, where Chiang Kai-shek was vilified for decades, they want to see the real object sometimes, and we take it out for them. And it's the, that visceral connection to the object. Do you have a measure? You know, sometimes you go to a, a library, you take out a book, in the old days you would anyway, and, you'd say, and you could see that if somebody had stamped in the old days when it was last taken out, and you'd realize, oh my gosh, this book is not that popular uh, so does it be a book you wrote, which would be really depressing. <laughs> but putting that to the side, um, there were things in the archives, uh, thousands of things that have never been examined, I assume. I'd say that's probably true. Right? The modal piece is unexamined. Yep. It's the most common category. There are some pieces that have been looked at once. There's some collections that are open often. Besides the Chiang Kai-shek diaries, what else is popular research-wise? And is it, it must go in waves of... Yeah, so, so two things. One is that as an archive... The amount of time something is used is less important to us than we feel we're preserving the most important material for the few users who want to see it. Yeah, that's, for that's, sure. you know, if you, because it's a challenge because in libraries, it's important that if books aren't circulated all the time, they can check and they can say, well, let's move right. these off-site. That's okay yeah. in my, my opinion. But, but in archives, um, the, the amount of use is a little bit less, less often. Um, I mean, somebody could come here and... It's something that could be unused, and then 50 years from now, it could be transformative of how we think about something. Right, that'd right, be wonderful. Right. I mean, a good example is uh, Fred Golder, one of our earlier, earliest collectors, went to the Soviet Union in 1922, just after the Bolshevik Revolution, as they were selling off their treasures to build tractors and bought some books from, from, the Soviet, from Russia. They had repossessed them from nobles and churches and so on, and we put them in our archive, and we were just cataloging some of them now. Wow. So no one's Whoa, seen baby. them now. People wow. are scholars. So you asked them what... Um, Collections get a lot of use. Uh, you're right, it does go through phases. The Bath Party archives, a lot of books have come out, a lot, meaning five books have come That's out a lot. in the last few years. That's quite popular. Um, does, does anybody ever want something back? We just talked about a case where someone gave us a gift for, it's a loan, 
yeah. the expectation will be returned. Um, it could be an interesting question if you don't know who to return it to. It, that'll be an interesting legal question, I guess. It's hard to can't I can't imagine you know leaving it on a street corner and hoping someone picks it up. <laughs> but um, we did recently get a letter from uh, the governor of a uh, province in Russia asking for the return of patrimony of someone who is from their province and said, I understand this material is at Hoover. Return and, of what? Uh, a collection of materials by someone who is from the province. Okay. Saying, you know, this is a son of our province and the material oh, okay. belongs here. He was an important figure to us. And uh, our, our Robert Conquest curator for Russia came to me and showed me the letter. And he also did some research. He, he uh, would be unlikely to give it back. But anyway, he went into the file. and There was actually a letter in the deed of gift, attached to the deed of gift from the fellow saying, I never want this material to go back to Russia. <laughs> so we sent that <laughs> instead uh, of the material. Yeah, that, that's, I guess, pretty powerful. Although this is a common problem. I mean, uh, Greece wants the Elgin marbles back. So the British Museum, would, re for a variety of reasons, some legitimate, some probably not so legitimate. So bootleg and Baptist issue is a high-minded arguments for it, some not so high-minded arguments. But uh, it's hard to give stuff back. Well, right. There's no easy answer for this, yeah. for cultural property and, uh, you know, institutions like ours that preserve things that might have been destroyed in other environments, like in revolutions, um, do a service for history by doing that. So yeah. there's no easy answer for yeah. it. So I started, I went off track, but I started asking about pieces of paper. So we have a lot of pieces of paper. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of non-pieces of paper, too, which surprised me I recently discovered. So what, what are some of the things we have? We don't have the Lusitania, but that would be a non-piece of paper, obviously. What are some of the other things that are in the quote in the archive that are not traditionally associated with what people would think of? Sure, a couple things I would mention. We have um, most of the broadcast of Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, the radio stations that were broadcast into um, communist countries in multiple languages mm -hmm. on multiple different kinds of tape formats, That's and fun. so those are stored in boxes, and we're selectively digitizing them to make them available online. So it's a gigantic collection. We don't have enough people speaking the language to um, even describe them. We're working with partners around the world to help us. That's really unusual and a lot of work and deteriorating fast. So those become challenges. And you asked about storage. In off-site storage, they limit the amount of non-paper materials due to fire codes. Hmm. So you've got these tapes, which we don't want to use again once they're digitized, but we can't move them out of our storage here. Hmm. Um, we have some interesting art collections, three-dimensional objects, swords, uh, How many swords do we have? We think? have some swords. How many swords? <laughs> I haven't counted them all, but do we have ten or is it a thousand? Uh, it's between twenty and fifty swords. Uh -huh. uh, a lot of projects there: swords, paintings. Um, now the paintings presumably have market value, uh, unlike correspondence. I mean, correspondence can, I guess, too. But a, a lot of things we did with that we're talking about are, are essentially they're not going to generally ever be sold on the open market, no. or and there's nothing quote like it on the open market, but. But our work is very much that way. But we are just we just keep it. Yeah, we, let me tell you, I endeavor not to collect non-paper materials. But over the years, because we're not a museum, right, and we're not here to store fine uh, oil paintings, right? That's because they don't have research and historical value, presumably. Well, they know they have research and historical value, but um, of a different our, our, nature. A little bit from our, from our mission, a little scans from our mission. Yeah, and you know they should be stored under real superb museum conditions. So we do have an exhibit space here. Um, do those paintings ever get shown? I mean, they're just sitting there. It's kind of sad. We, we do show the paintings sometimes. Um, our exhibit space does a rotating exhibit uh, twice a year on, on topics like William F. Buckley's firing line. We own the uh, recordings and the copyright to that show. The Okhrana, the Russian secret police files from the Tsar's era in Paris in 1905. Um, 
Why 1905? Why Paris? That's an interesting collection, actually. So the Tsar had a secret police surveying revolutionaries, uh, or, or surveilling revolutionaries, and he, he, a lot of the revolutionaries were based right. in France, Paris, Trotsky, yeah. and so on. So they have mugshots of revolutionaries, surveillance documents on them. This is an interesting collection because um, it came to Hoover and it was closed till 1956, and the CIA used that collection to see how early, um, how the KGB might have operated. In other words, what did the KGB learn from its predecessors. Yeah, I wonder how many of those people are the same people. They just switched their you know, badge. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so what's the 1905 part of that? Uh, I think, you know... The, the that's when we got it? No, that's, that's when, when the surveillance was, was mainly... Was main, before the revolution, 1905 to 1919. Yeah, so uh, do we know how... Um, uh, the 1917, mem- actually, 19- I think we got it. Sorry, 1917. Yeah, sorry. but I was thinking that 1919, I said, yeah, 19 was Versailles, so it's confusing. Um, I 1919 think. is when Hoover's founded, too, that's yeah. right. <laughs> so, do you know how that came to us? Uh, a member of the Russian embassy after the revolution took it with him and eventually got it to Hoover. Do you think it was a gift or a sale? Do you I'm know? sure it was a gift. Uh-huh. So, so interesting. Um, what are some of the preservation challenges? You talked a little bit about, I mean... There's some trivial, obvious things like piece of paper tend to be put in slip covers and other things like that. What are some of the film deteriorates over time? So you want to digitize that sooner than later. But what are some of the other issues that well, I'd keep my sword oiled? But yeah, other than those, there's some other special things. And how do you keep up to date? I mean, one of the things interesting about this conversation for me, and you know, I see Eric in the hall every once in a while when I'm out here in the summer, and we, you know, we chit chat and we. He's a buddy, and I, and I like him, but I, I didn't really appreciate the scope of what your job must be like day to day. So we've got building acquisition, we've got negotiation, we've got um, historical mission, we've got a lot of public face, the institutions, archives. And now here's this other one is, is like a uh, handyman. I mean, you got to yeah. figure out. True. Right. So, what are you doing there? So, you know, our mission has got to be to preserve things for the next hundred years, right? Whatever that means. Does it, it means putting them in boxes? It means digitizing them? It means figuring out how to allocate resources to the collections most in danger. We can't also spend a lot of money on all of the collections. So, we have this mission to preserve and a duty to conserve the materials. It means we have a laboratory here for we have book a and paper. Well, I what call does it that a lab. Mean? It's got um, book and paper conservation techniques. We rebind books. We preserve three-dimensional objects. We clean icons. And there are specialists in there trained in preservation methods. How many people do we have in that? Uh, we How have ask, in the lab? Uh, four in that lab. We have three in a video and um, photography preservation lab. We have two in an audio lab. We still have some people doing microfilming, and we also have a staff doing digitization. So a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff is about making this accessible to future wow. researchers. Uh, I just want to say for the record that I, I, I took two, two folks up to the Hoover Tower yesterday to go to the observation deck. And when I came down, I tried to take a photograph. They said I couldn't. And I said, why, why not? Well, we just don't allow it. Do you know anything about that, Eric? I hate to put you on the spot here. No, I've seen that sign there. I can't quite figure it out either. There's nothing in there. You should not take a picture. It's one of these, we've always had that law, yeah. so we're going to keep that law. No, and, and the person who stopped me was very pleased about that, uh, stopping me. I think that's some additional pleasure. I'm sorry to report uh, I will not identify that person. We'll just that's she's just doing her job. That's okay. Um, anything else about preservation you want to say? Obviously, like you say, you have to step on cutting edge. Is there stuff in the arc? Do you, do you lose sleep at night thinking there's stuff wasting away somewhere that you don't know about that's maybe important? Yes, especially um, nitrate film, uh-huh. which both deteriorates and can explode. Oh, <laughs> we keep it in freezers. 
keep um, it, we keep it in freezers. Special freezers to keep the, the nitrate, wow. uh, whatever the chemical term is, so it doesn't deteriorate into an explosive substance. Um, uh, all the recordings that are on old tapes that break. You know, right. paper can Pretty last reliable. for a while. One of the shocking things I've learned is that microfilm, it's outdated technology, primitive. lasts a long time. A good microfilm can last 50, 100 years, where it's digitization. We don't know about the problems for that over 50 or 100 years. Do we have a lot of microfilm? We have an enormous microfilm collection. How, of what? What are kind of things are on So there? it used to be the practice for many collections in the early days, we would just microfilm the entire collection, put it on reels, and then people could look at those instead of the actual papers. Right. So do people still use those? You know, Because I remember, you know, in, in my youth... I've done microfilm research. It's it's not pleasant. It's hard on the eyes. You know, the readers are awkward. You're scanning through, you know, you're rolling the pages of the newspaper. That's I'm how we you. look at newspapers. My dissertation, I got a lot of good old dissertations on microfilm to help me out. Uh-huh. Um, you know, to be honest, we do get a lot of use for microfilm. Um, newer microfilm readers are quite good and allow you to make copies from material. And you can scan through stuff. But you know what's the best part of microfilm I found? Digitizing from microfilm is faster and easier and much cheaper than digitizing from paper. So if the microfilm was done right, that's a great process. Can I talk about one thing we're doing, which I think is really interesting? Sure. We have a project to digitize um, millions of pages of Japanese newspapers published in America in different communities in Hawaii and the West Coast and so on from 1900 to World War World War II. Um, and what we're doing as part of our access project is to digitize all this with a grant from a donor and make it available for free online. Those kind of projects I find are really satisfying. Cool. Uh, who is Joan Quigley, and why is she relevant for the Hoover Institution Archives? In the 1980s, Mrs. Nancy Reagan had a private astrologer named Joan Quigley, and she called Joan. You call her a private astrologer. <laughs> what does the word private mean Sorry, in that? In a that personal astrologer. Sense. Okay, okay. Not- not a government astrologer. Not a government astrologer. Okay. Good point. Yeah. That's what you meant. I got um, it. That's good. And she asked Joan to do charts for her and for Mr. Reagan. And Joan did the charts for Mr. Reagan. And one of the rumors has been that President Reagan arranged his schedule based on Joan Quigley's charts. What would be auspicious days for doing things? Nancy Reagan is, is known for being, or at least suspected of being something of a, a, an important figure in the Reagan White House in the day-to-day workings of it. Yes. So this would be the claim here that she, through her astrologer, was working on his schedule. Right. So, you know, we thought our, our mission is to study war, revolution, peace, and American political movements. And uh, Joan Quigley's sister, Ruth, called us and said, would we like to have the charts done on President Reagan? And I said, sure. And it turns out that um, Joan Quigley was doing charts on many people at the time, one of whom was Reagan. Now, Mrs. Reagan asked for those charts. In some cases, Joan Quigley was just doing charts on important historical events to see what, what would happen, what, how were the stars aligned for them. So we've just gotten in. I haven't had a chance to look at them yet. They've just arrived. It's hard for me to respond to that. Uh, I'm just <laughs> going to leave that alone. Uh, is that the quirkiest thing? I'll just call it that, quirky. Is that the quirkiest thing we have in the archive? That That's pretty quirky, I think, yeah. We also have a jar of Mr. Reagan's, uh, President Reagan's jelly beans. You scared me there. <laughs> I, I, you really scared me. When you said jar, I'm thinking Abby Normal and uh, Igor Frankenstein. and Young Frankenstein. Because for some, I don't know why. Maybe it's the Hitler discussion earlier in the brain. I, Mel sorry Brooks about is just that. around yeah. the corner. Um, what do we, we have a jar of his jelly beans? A jar of his jelly beans. What does that mean? 
somehow in one collection of a group of people associated with Mr. Reagan or Mr. Reagan, we, we acquired that at some point. I don't, I don't actually know the provenance of the jelly beans. Could you find them if I ask you? I can find them. <laughs> they have been seen. By the way, that's got to be an interesting challenge, right? How do you find, how do you, when you have 100,000 linear feet? Well, so everything's, every collection is cataloged and we know where it is on the shelves. And generally the contents of the boxes are described. I assume there are conferences where archivists get together and talk about these kind of things. Is that correct? And right now, there's going one going on right now. The Society of American Archivists meets every year and talks about these issues. It's a great conference. Why aren't you, why aren't you there? I had, unfortunately, some important things to do here. This could be this Econ Talk interview. I'm sure you wouldn't have dreamed of postponing or canceling. You no, know, you haven't asked me. <laughs> well, other, other, besides jelly beans, the thing that archivists um, like to share thoughts on is strange things they found in boxes that they didn't expect to oh, find. Oh, yeah. I bet that's true. So among the ones we've uh, heard of or found here have been old cheese, dried cheese, big hunk of cheese, uh, gunpowder in a little satchel. <laughs> and in a recent collection, we got uh, a brown recluse spider nest. Wow. Yeah. That's, pr- that's pretty creepy. Now, I'm going to just say this. I know it's a little embarrassing, but um, I'm not sure I've told this story on, on EconTalk before, and I apologize if I have. But when I spoke in um, in England about uh, my Adam Smith book uh, before my talk at the uh, RSA, I was put in the green room, the room that you hang out in before your talk, and there was a chair there that it turned out had um, existed uh, when Adam Smith was alive. Adam Smith was a member of the RSA. Yeah, and the, and the RSA is the Royal Society of Arts. It, it's originally, its full title is the Royal Society for the Engagement of Arts, Manufacturers, and Commerce. And when I went there, and the person guiding me around, meeting me, was knew I was talking about Adam Smith. She was all excited because she said Adam Smith had been a member. So I get to this room, and there's a chair in the corner, and the chair was as old as Adam Smith that had hmm. existed when he was a member of the society. And it dawned on me that he may have sat in the chair. Did you get to sit in it? Well, I wanted to sit in it. And I, I'm, if you've read my book on Adam Smith, listeners will remember that there's an interesting thing there about celebrity and our desire to be with celebrities. And so I, 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 did, I wanted to sit in the chair, but there was a sign that said, do not sit in the chair. But there was no one in the room. Uh, so I often ask people, do you think I sat in the chair or not? And the answer is I didn't, uh, because even though there's no one in the room, I was in the room, and I would feel bad sitting in the chair and degrading it. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's of some historical interest because of the person who designed it. Um, but, of course, I would say that anyway, because Adam Smith fans know that I have a desire to be uh, lovely and to be thought <laughs> to be lovely, but I actually have a desire to be lovely, as Smith would have said. So I did not sit in the chair, although there's no proof of that, unless it was under video surveillance. But I'm just, I, I have to say, when you mention the uh, Ronald Reagan jelly beans, th- there's got to be a temptation to take just one. I mean, really, there may be, let's say there's 100 <laughs> beans in the jar. And what would really be the harm? We'd still have a jar of Ronald Reagan jelly beans. No one's going to know. You could do that anytime. You know, it could be a scandal of immense proportions, but it's probably not... The, well, let me ask it this way. Is the shelf under surveillance? I, I'm going to go back in the stacks after our interview and go eat some jelly beans. <laughs> and you could, you could, of course, turn off the In the movie, you would turn off the surveillance, the okay, video so cameras. I'll turn the alarms off. There'd be a little a flickering, and it would be you know, it'd be a shadowy figure that it couldn't be identified. It would be you having a jelly bean. But anyway. As I recall, the jar is tied shut with a ribbon, but I could be wrong. Yeah, you'll have to retie it. <laughs> so, but that's no problem. Um, 
What do you like most about your job? I love the fact that new things happen every day and the variety of experiences I get to have and, and, and my colleagues get to have. So um, in one day, you might be talking to a donor about an interesting collection, working with a vendor on a preservation or digitization project, um, talking to colleagues about how to collaborate on something, connecting the materials we have to historians' work, uh, speaking at a conference on researchers who are coming in to use the archives. Um, so it's, it's a whole host of different activities that all lead to this idea that information is important and material goods are important to society and the world. Yeah, I don't know how many listeners have a dream of being an archivist. And probably not that many, but... It's I good because there aren't that many jobs. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a good point. But I think uh, what's fascinating for me in our conversation is that two things, among others, but... There are a lot of things I've enjoyed, but one of them is I think one's perception of an archivist is, a, is, is very dull. and It's not a dull job. But the second part is you just kind of think, I mean, I would have thought incorrectly, obviously, that the Hoover Archive has this immense amount of stuff. It's a lot of it related to communism, a lot of it related to wars, uh, a lot of it related to the Cold War, uh, political movements, uh, revolutions, etc., and they all happened already. Mm -hmm. So your main job is just to keep the place from burning down. I mean, really, what's new? We've got this, this is history, right? So the idea that there's new stuff coming along every day and not just stuff like Firing Line or, you know, recent Radio Free Europe stuff. The fact that there's new historical stuff that's, that, that uh, surfaces must be exhilarating. Yeah, it's fascinating that new historical stuff from the past surfaces and we can collect it, but also thinking about what will people be interested in 50 years from now. Right. So I collected a whole group of um, publications by jihadi sources in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, going up to the 2000s. Those will be interesting, but really... How'd you get those? Um, what are they? Well, so they're, um, you know, it's a, it's a very much of a print culture society, and so the various political parties and groups in Afghanistan published their own newspapers, uh, magazines and newspapers, frankly, from early days we collected from the 1960s. And they published a monthly or weekly newspaper on their political party. The Taliban had them. The, Shah, the, the, the king had them. Wow. And so we, a man collected them from the markets for many, many years and had a private library in Kabul and um, asked us if we could help him get them out and you know, pay him for them. And we're digitizing them and putting them online. How did we... Is, can you talk about how we sure, got them out? Sure, sure. Um, so the first... Um, he, didn't, he didn't bring them to us. And how, how much... So it's, it's a truckload? Uh, in this a case, we, we, it's, it's, many, many, it's many pallets, many pallets. So the first case, interesting, interesting story, um, I bought a, I saw a piece of them actually at an, at a, from a dealer. And I thought, this is really interesting. They're graphically interesting. They tell a story about politics. Yeah. So I bought them, a small piece. And as we were going through preservation for them, we saw a stamp from a private library in Afghanistan, in English, on it. So right away, I was worried I bought stolen material. And so I, I checked with the dealer, and he said it wasn't stolen. And then we reached out to the library just to make sure we have your stuff. We'd like to return you it. You know, my dad sends me library books all the time. And I say, Dad, uh, no, I bought it. You know, they, 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 change, they get rid of some of their collections sometimes. So he said, no, I'm glad you bought it. I sold my excess, and would you like to help me get the rest out? My library's under a bit of a threat. And so we, um, I actually wanted to go to Kabul to, to visit him. But Stanford said, and my wife said no. So, <laughs> um, uh, and someone went for us and um, talked to him, and they got it out via the airport on pallets. 
Hmm. And we paid them for them when we're digitizing them. And I think it's a good good thing. Do you ever talk about how much we pay for something like that? Uh, no. Okay, because, I mean, that's obviously, again, no. There are, some, there are collectors who would pay, who would buy them. But in that amount, um, we have a unique value to us of that because it's not just going to be treasured by that the owner. It'll be shared. Right, right. And I assume the, that person who sold them to us, you know, obviously wanted that. Absolutely. He, right. he he said he would love to. He was his idea. He would love to do it, and you know, it would be safer. Yeah. Because you'd be under threat. It wouldn't be destroyed or burned or whatever, and we've made available. I'd be careful with those. Do you? Um, but you know, you you mentioned new things being yeah, yeah. created. Think about the world now. People aren't doing as much on paper as they used to. The right. new world, it's emails and digital documents. Right. That whole collecting area is a whole new re- uh, realm for us. How are we? Dealing with that. So not as well as we've been dealing in the paper age. There's such a volume of information created in so many different formats. We have to figure out now when we get collections, how do you archive someone's emails? How do you take the personal emails out of there? What kind of search are you going to do? And it's actually harder to collect the digital stuff. Oh, sure. Has anybody turned over their personal emails to us, historical figures? Um, So we've gotten them in forms of hard drives, floppy disks, and things like that. we and we're figuring out a process to sort of quarantine them and do forensics to pull them off certain places. But the key is a lot of people's email, of course, are stored on some server somewhere. Yeah. So when we get a collection, we try to figure out how to, how to get that off there. I, there are some people evidently who know how to do that uh, yes. without the person's permission. But <laughs> exactly. We'll, we'll leave that alone. Um, how about collections that got away that you were regret? Wish we'd gotten a Lusitania. I don't know how you personally feel about that. I understand that. I missed I miss that one. Um, yeah. One, that's the fish that got away. One that, that um, got away in my career was um, collection of Nina Simone, the singer, mm-hmm. uh, whose one of her ex-husbands had a collection of hers. And um, this was at another institution, but actually reached out to us and said, would we like to buy it? This gets to the valuation issue. Um, I'm always open to conversation. No matter what it is, it's always great to talk to people. So he said, come on over to my house. I visited him. He showed me some, he had some 8mm performance films that he wanted 1.5 million each for. Um, 1.5 million? Each for okay. an 8mm. This, this is not Hoover. This not was a different institution. Columbia. And um, then the most interesting thing was a diary she had kept for a while, which a diary is often really great, you know, windows into people's souls and, um, He'd shown that to some researchers, and, and you know, he wanted us to buy it. And we just didn't have the money. It was, it was out of our range, and I thought the valuation was too high. But after a while, he called me up later and said, you know what, I'd like scholars to see the diary. It would be good to have, so I'm going to give you the diary, which I thought was the most valuable part of the collection. Yeah. So I said, great. I came. He signed a deed of gift. We got the diary, and we were about to start preserving it and showing it to readers when we got a call from his lawyer saying we had misled him, and we needed to give it back. And in spite of having a deed of gift, the lawyers at the university said, no, you've got to give that back. So we gave it back. So now that diary is back with him and no one has seen it. Wow. Presumably the lawyers, either he had second thoughts or the lawyers felt they could get more for it or try to talk yeah, him out of yeah. it. Or To be frank, I said or to you him, took advantage of him. And, no, no. To yeah. be frank, what I said to him is I'm a market guy. I said, you know what? You're going to get the best value if you get someone in from one of the big auction houses, have them evaluate it and auction it off. So that you're at Columbia University. That library has an immense range of stuff, as does Stanford's. Is there ever stuff here that you turn down that Stanford takes or vice versa? That, do you guys ever fight? Yeah, so at, at, at the Hoover Institution, we often will turn down things that are very Stanford-related, and they go to the Stanford archives. 
uh, it was called the University Archives for Stanford, uh, collections about people who are affiliated with Stanford but really aren't global war revolution peace people. And we share things together. That library and ours work together on projects. But in general, you're you're going to stick with stuff that you feel is consistent with our mission. And yes. Do you ever get tempted or regret, again, things that you turned down that you thought, I mean, just to say it in an unattractive way, I, you know, it's it's fun to have visitors. It's fun to get attention. Surely there must be some stuff that comes over the transom that you think, well, it's not exactly on our mission, but wouldn't it be nice to have it? It'd be fun. It'd be whatever. to ever happen? Sure, there are literary collections that come across. Like, there's a wonderful George Orwell collection. Really? That I really wanted from um, his um, his publisher's archive in England went on the block. Gallants. And it was the That's collection. That's the publisher? The publisher. And it was a collection of all, it was correspondence with many of the authors, including um, Orwell. And the Orwell ones were very, I'm a big George Orwell fan, so the, the collection was really interesting to me. It was very expensive and it was a little outside of our mission. So. Yeah, a little expensive. If it would have been free, you may would have, might have, would have taken a shot at it. <laughs> Not exactly outside our mission, though, actually, right? I mean, no. Orwell's yeah. in the... He's definitely, he's definitely in there, yeah, fair enough. But I guess there's a lot of stuff that wasn't, really wouldn't be in that. Yeah, you range. know, the other thing is, as a, as a historian, which I'm trained as an archivist, it's really important that collections stay together. So when you take a publisher's collection and there are correspondence with 20 figures, you sell them off one at a time, you're destroying the cohesiveness of that collection, that correspondence with that one publisher. In that sense, it's wrong in some way. Right. So, so that's, a, that's a code, that's an unwritten rule or moral code or norm that an archivist might have. What are some of the other things that would fall into that for you? Or when you, again, when you go to a conference and you talk to people, there must be some shared, when you're doing something that's, in, in a way, you're doing something that's incredibly primitive and basic, which is collecting, right? Yeah, human yeah. beings like to save stuff, accord, you know, <laughs> it's a very basic human drive, but you also have at the same time, uh, this mission of preservation and access, and I'm just thinking that there must be some shared culture among folks yeah, who are doing a that great, for a that's living. A great, that's a great question. People involved in this profession, whatever they're doing, preserving, archiving, collecting, all have a belief that's important to preserve things for history. So doing the right thing to preserve materials and making sure they get to the right people is important to them. So you know, this code of not breaking up collections is one thing you mentioned um, the code of people not, you know, one of the things people will, will do in book collections is razor out maps or, or, you know, pictures and sell them. So not buying things are clearly razor it, razor it out of books at auction. That's right? horrifying. Of course it's horrifying. <laughs> More of a market value for the individual. Wait, so know. what do they do? Dealers, some deal, unscrupulous dealers, will razor out pictures and frame them from books, right? So they'll destroy the book to disaggregate the pieces that are worth more separately. And you won't. You're, well, I'm at generally trying not to buy them. Because you like don't that. want to encourage or be a part of that, right? Right, right. Um, you know, making sure the material we get is actually owned by the seller or, or donor is important. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's also privacy and copyright issues that arise, right? So someone could, quote, own it or think they own it, so they sign over this Adidas gift that, where they claim that it's legitimate. But does that ever come back to bite us? Uh, not yet, but you've got to remember this. You own an archive, you have all this material from people who may be living or dead or have written about other people, and anyone can come in and read them. It's like right. there's a Dead Kennedy song, stealing people's mail. You're looking through people's mail. So there could be a privacy issue in many, many things in an archive, and yet it's available. So that's always a, a little bit of a concern to me. And that's part of their concern, I guess, the digitization. It, it feels different anyway that somebody would come in and um, 
somebody would come in and read a personal letter, uh, it's different somehow than somebody posting a blog post on it on the internet and spreading it around. Right. The what, I, what was the letter saying? I saw Russ Roberts rip up a Kane's postcard. Yeah, exactly. No, that's a piece of digital footage from your video. <laughs> um, no, I have a lot of respect for Mr. Keynes, actually. I just want to make that clear, and Mr. Hayek. And uh, I thought about writing a musical uh, based on uh, somebody doing archival research on Keynes and Hayek in, in the Hoover Archive, but that hasn't happened yet. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm not totally. I'm half serious. Well, Hamilton a, worked. Maybe a third serious, yeah. It's, it's a little more color there, but um, a little more historical interest, a little wider interest, perhaps. Um, but, I, you know, it's so funny. I lost my train of thought in the middle of that answer because, yeah, that idea of razoring out something is so anathema to me. And uh, I have a correspondent I will not identify who will occasionally, instead of copying something, wants me to see a page out of a book and will literally tear it out oh. of the book. And I, I, I just I have an emotional reaction. I don't care. It's not a rare book. It doesn't matter. It just it's something. It's a violation there. It just it strikes me as, ah. Anyway, I just had a, a flash of that. It's like I didn't until I was, um, I don't know, maybe in my fifties. I never wrote in a book. Uh, I most of the books I own that I've read, you can't tell that I've read them. Mm. I was always I never opened them widely. I never bent pages back. Um, you know, a lot of people read books. They they put them open upside down on the pay on the counter to show where their pages are. <laughs> and it, I'm horrified. I look at it and think the spine, the spine. What are you thinking? But I've gotten a little more loose. But it's still the idea of razoring out is is just it's just awful. Um, let's close with an issue you you referred to a minute ago, and it was very relevant for a recent guest, Abby Smith Rumsey, talking about collective memory and some of the challenges of of establishing archival material in the digital age, and, and there is something. There's something very primal and powerful about original artifacts, uh, whether it's an X-ray or a piece of paper ordered an incredibly important moment in, in history, and and he, those things are going to disappear uh, in a way. They're not going to. It's not that they're going to disappear. They're, they're not going to exist in the same way. Um, emails are. It, it, it's ironic, right? Mm -hmm. So we have everything saved. I have. If you go to my Gmail account, please don't. But if you if you were, went into my Gmail account, I have forty nine thousand unread Gmails. Um, so I've got them all, and I can go back and look any time at my emails from two thousand and seven or two thousand and nine. And of course, they're there because I think maybe I will someday, which of course is absurd. I just don't bother. I don't bother cleaning them up. So they're all there, and yet their accessibility, which is the key issue that you raised earlier. Uh, not that it minor of historical interest, but for important historical figures, we won't have their correspondence. I think you mentioned Hamilton. I think about the founders, uh, Jefferson and and Adams, uh, to quote the musical Hamilton. In the musical, it says, history has its eyes on you. And they knew that, and they corresponded with each other, I think, very um, strategically to some extent. They were friends eventually. But I think they knew that their correspondence would be read down the ages. And I assume that changed what they wrote. And they maybe occasionally, as we do, just like we'll have a face-to-face -face conversation rather than something on email that we think is personal that might not be best shared. So they did, I'm sure, the same thing. I'm sure they occasionally spoke face-to-face -face about things and reminisced in ways they wouldn't in their correspondence. But we have their correspondence. And, of course, 
I just I just love this. They died July fourth, eighteen twenty six. Yes, fifty years to the day um, of the Declaration of Independence, and I I believe deeply that that wasn't a coincidence that they both wanted to live to see that day, and they tried hard to stay alive, and it helped. That effort man- mattered. Uh, I suspect had something to do with why they survived. So we live in an age where, you know, that's gone to some extent. We're not going to be able to see some of those originals. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's the great paradox of this wonderful digital open, everyone can find it cultures that you really can't. All of this beautiful course, but you're absolutely right. We live in this age where we think everything is wonderful and open, this great access, but in fact, all of that correspondence at the beginning of the digital era is, is not going to be found. So actually, historians and everyone else's job about access to the past is going to be incredibly difficult until we figure out a way to do it. It's sad and irretrievable, I would say. But going forward, I mean, one of the one of the costs of that openness is that we, I think, commit less and less to the public record. Uh, we say things more that are quiet and on face-to-face. And, and I actually believe, you know, based on, after I read Kevin Kelly's book, uh, The Inevitable, and interviewed him, I, I have the feeling that our culture's attitude toward privacy is, is going to change. Mm-hmm. It's not a very controversial statement. I think it's changed dramatically in the last 10 years. The way we feel about intrusion, the way we feel about, you know, the, the willingness of people to share aspects of their lives publicly is really dramatically different. And I think that's going to affect maybe what we do put in email. And for people who grew up with it rather than people who didn't grow up with it, it's going to be different. But um, so I think it will change, but that makes your job really different. Yeah, very hard to figure out, target the areas in which we can collect, in which people want to share their correspondence with us, while always acknowledging that people are always thinking before they write, right? So there's, there is always a notion of, even in the written paper age, you know, how were they thinking about how they wrote their letters and what did they want people to remember about them? And that's just, we're, you're talking about correspondence, but of course it's more than correspondence. So things like uh, Chiang Kai-shek's diaries, things like... Uh, I'm not sure what else would fall into this category. You know, with, with Abby Smith Rumsey, we talked about you know the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. That we have drafts of it, and yeah. people can look right. at them and right. how that affects them when they see that things were crossed out is like is jarring. And drafts, right? And people don't save their emails. They're they're drafts of their of their right. works right. created digitally necessarily. That's right. You, right. Just get the, you just get the final. I mean, you know, we have you know we have we have T.S. Eliot's uh, poetry with Ezra Pound's handwritten marginalia. Yes, um, and uh, t- is, I think it's, is it the, I think it's the wasteland is dedicated as repound to Miglier Fabro, the better craftsman, which is uh, probably the ultimate compliment a poet could give another, and to do it in Italian just adds to the snobbish appeal of that, of course. Um, but all that's going to be gone, right? Yeah, I'm reminded of Salman Rushdie who donated his old PC to Emory University, and it had drafts of wow. several things over time, and they were able to preserve it in that way. So. You know, oh, if you're so writing and your hard drive or your, your, your cloud space preserves your old draft, you, one could, in theory, donate those. Yeah. But, yeah, it makes it hard. My guest today has been Eric Waken. Eric, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.